0: What is the exact middle of the Bible? Psalm 117. The next one. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Psalm 117. Oh, oh, okay. I thought you said the next one after that. Okay, and you got he got it also. Okay, we it is it is Psalm 117. There is 1189 chapters in the Bible. If you divide that in two, you have two even numbers with one in the middle. It's Psalm 117. I got another question for you. I'm going to make this very difficult. What is the shortest chapter in the Bible? Jesus, Psalm, 117. Psalm 117. See, there we go. Okay. Um, I got another question for you. One more. Let's. Yes, I'm going to take you all for a ride. I got one more question. This is going to be really, really difficult. What am I just about to read right now? Psalm 117. Psalm 117. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 14, the Song of Moses, part two, okay? Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 7. Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you; your elders and they will tell you. When the most high divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people; Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in the desert land and in the wasteland a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan, and goats with the choicest wheat, and you drank wine, the blood of grapes. Okay, before I get into the sermon, I'd like to tell you something that happened this morning. I've talked about it several times over the years, and it is something that, always to me validates the word of god okay in sarasota bay i would assume that there are hundreds of millions if not billions of gallons of water there's a lot of water there okay i have a uh, uh, background in wastewater treatment and a two million gallon tank is actually not that big okay so imagine sarasota bay and all the millions and billions of gallons of water there Normally, the water comes up. If I was to jump off my dock and stand up, this is the end of my dock. It would be about this deep, okay? And then from there, you go across the bay, and it gets a little deeper. When we get a cold front, the cold front will come in, rushing from the north, and within a few hours, that's all it takes, the entire bay will drain so that you could literally walk across the bay and never get above your knees, okay? That happened last night. And it was not as shallow as I've seen it. I've seen it more shallow going way past the end of the dock. Today, it was almost to the end of the dock. And when I walked out there, the first thing I always do is I look around for conks because the conks lay on the bottom. And that's the time you just go grab them and that's dinner. Okay. But there were no conks out there today. So I didn't do that. But um, it validates the, the Bible in the sense that Moses appealed to the Lord at the Exodus And it says that the Lord did what? Set a strong east wind that blew all night. And if you have a deep body of water and a land bridge under that, which is not an uncommon thing in the world, then you will have the water's part. And it's exactly what the Bible said happened. And Sarasota, Florida validates that premise every single winter to some degree, but today it was more than normal because it was such a strong wind coming through. So when you disbelieve the Bible because of, uh, you can't cross the Red Sea. That's not possible. Just come to Sarasota, Florida after a cold front, a good, strong-winded cold front, and you will see. And if you want to see it right now, just go to Siesta Key Sunrise Cam in my backyard, and you can just scroll back a couple hours, and you can see it. it. You've got the two sandbars that are all the way out of the water, and they almost connect, and then you've got the end of the dock, and then a little bit of water, which will never get above knee-deep all the way across. Now, obviously, we have what's called the intercoastal waterway, which they have dredged out. That's a man-made thing, and so that's not empty. But other than that, Circa de Bay, to me, always validates the Bible. Having said that, we'll get into our sermon now. There are some magnificent literary devices used by Moses in the verses today. He uses parallelism, but he does so in various ways. He uses metaphor. He uses the imperative form of verbs to add vibrancy and life to what he is saying. He uses a form of a verb that gives the sense of a command a couple of times. These and other such devices bring the passage to a state of animation that brings you directly into what he is saying, as if you are participating what's happening. If you close your eyes as it is being read, you will be able to form mental images in this way, putting yourself directly into the life of Israel. Moses will also say something in verse 8 that leaves many guessing as to the intent. Because of variations in the source text of the verse, it is hard to know exactly what the true rendering is. Unfortunately, because of this, biblical sensationalists, that means people that take the Bible and make everything sensational, will take what is said and incorrectly apply it to shoddy theology they have developed elsewhere. It sells well, but it really isn't responsible theology. Our text first comes from Galatians 3. For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. Properly looking at terms that are used throughout Scripture... One can develop a right understanding of otherwise improperly developed themes, if one is willing to do so. But typically, people hear something, they stick with what they have been told, and would rather go down with the ship than adapt to what is evidently right, as concerns that particular thought. When we get to verse 8, I will give my best analysis of what I think the true rendering is and why I think it is so. It doesn't mean I'm right, but there is a logical way to look at various source texts and come to a reasonable conclusion concerning the variations. The verse had to start with an original set of words. Attempting to figure out what they are will help us to consider other such changes in source texts as well. With this, we can begin to discern various agendas that are behind the manipulation of what is said. Sometimes a normal translational change is responsible. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding of what is being conveyed. Sometimes it may reveal a bias in thought. And sometimes such a change may be purposeful in order to hide something otherwise quite obvious. Take the New World Translation of the Bible, meaning the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, and that is all over it, purposeful changes in Scripture. Or, as I will show you when we get to verse 8, the Masoretes. The Masoretic text of 1034 AD purposefully changed portions of scripture to hide somebody. Guess who? Studying the word is a lifelong pursuit. We should do so with all of our attention and diligence, and we should be careful to refrain from sensationalism. The reason for this is that sensationalism will draw our attention away from what is most sensational of all, Jesus Let us remember this as we evaluate the word. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is the calling of Israel. It's verses seven through nine. In our evaluation of the song now before us concerning an outline, we first divided last week verses one and two which were set forth as an introduction of the song. Verses 3 and 4 proclaimed the perfections of Jehovah, And verses 5 and 6 provided a contrast as seen in the imperfections of Israel. Now, the next major division of the song goes from verses 7 to 14. They speak of the calling, establishment, and exalting of the nation. That thought is introduced with the words of verse 7. Verse 7, remember the days of old. Zekor Yamut olam, remember days antiquity. The verb is singular. It could be speaking of Israel collectively or as a directive to each person individually. Based on the poetic structure of the verse, I would say it is the latter. Each person is to remember. The word olam is a common one that has to be carefully translated to avoid confusion. The reason why I say this before I go on is the word olam is translated as forever or everlasting or whatever, depending on what translation you're reading. And some people will say, well, that says forever, and that means it's forever and ever, and they get a misunderstanding of what's actually being said in the Hebrew, because not every forever in the Bible is forever. That's correct. It speaks of time out of mind either into the past or into the future. In this case, because it is defining the word remember, it refers to ancient days gone by. In some instances, it can speak of days completely out of mind, where there is no understanding of the reference at all. This is found, for example, in Micah chapter 5, when referring to the coming Messiah. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah... Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from olam, from everlasting. The very nature of the surrounding words calls forth the idea of someone who will come, but who had already existed for a period that cannot even be mentally grasped. So you have to take olam in the context of what is being said. However, The days that Moses now refers to are not unknowable. This is because Moses is specifically calling for remembrance. As this is the case, there is an oral or a written account of what occurred that is being called to mind. Thus, Olam here is speaking of days that are knowable, but which reach out of the mind to the hearer only in the sense that they predate his personal existence. The record of those days is being called to memory as a tool for future instruction. That continues to be understood from the next words. Verse 7 continues Consider the years of many generations. Benu shenot dor vador. Mentally scan years, generation and generation. I inserted the word mentally into my translation because that's what it's asking you to do, but there's not really a word that corresponds with what I'm trying to tell you. Whereas the verb in the last clause was singular, it is now plural. You all. The alternating use of the singular and the plural is a marvelous tool that Moses employs to captivate the collective mind of the audience as well as each individual mind within it. The minds of the people are now asked to contemplate that which occurred long ago, mentally scanning what has been so that they can rightly understand what now is. As it is written as a witness to Israel for all generations, which we saw back in Deuteronomy 31, then it is something that is to be a living and active call to remember throughout their history. Repeating the word generation as he does, dor vador, is a poetic way of stating a plural, not unlike how we may employ such a thought today. Today I am living here, just as did my ancestors, year to year same idea. Moses has marvelously employed both switching of the number and parallelism in the first two clauses. A, remember, singular, days, antiquity. A, mentally scan, plural, years, generation and generation. So the clauses are parallel, but they also have a change in the number from singular to plural. He will continue with this in the next two clauses. Verse 7 continues ask your father and he will show you. Ask your father and he is to declare to you. The words switch back to the singular, but this is surely referring to each individual. Each of you is to ask. Further, the verb of the response to the question is a jussive, which is a mood that expresses almost a command. In essence, when you ask, He is given the command to know and be able to then pass on what you have inquired of. Likewise, verse 7 continues, your elders, and they will tell you, your elders, and they will say to you, the father is the spiritual elder of the house. The elders are the spiritual fathers of the people. Just as the father is to know and convey a response to you, so the elders are also to do. Again, notice the parallelism and the change in number. Ask your father and he, singularist, to declare to you, your elders and they, plural, will say to you. So you have a BB structure based on the first two verses. Just as when reading Shakespeare, one can see that there is attentive thought to every word and all words in each clause and taken together, the four clauses read, A-A-B-B, remember, singular, days, antiquity, mentally scan years generation and generation be your father and he singular is to declare to you be your elders and they will say to you now In this copy, which I'm not reading so the people online can't get this in their heads, I have all kinds of other little things there. I've got asterisks and asterisks that will tell you there's a corresponding thought. I've got a minus and a minus that shows you there is a corresponding thought. And so on. The plus and the plus show you a corresponding thought. So all of this is going on in these words that you would not get in the English, but you get when you see the Hebrew or the English laid out as the Hebrew is laid out. It's a most beautiful passage that we're looking at. Great attentive care is certainly the case with the next words, verse 8, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations. The New King James Version gives a good sense of what the meaning is here. A literal rendering says, Behanhel Elion Goyim in bequeathing Most High nations. In other words, the nations of the world were purposefully divided by Elion the Most High. He is above all nations, and he is the decider of their place and destiny. What has taken place is not arbitrary, and as such, there is a deterministic force that has caused the nations to be who they are and where they are. This is to be understood from both testaments of the Bible, both implicitly and explicitly. From Genesis 11, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all of the earth. The Lord determined the languages of the people. It is implied by the dividing of the languages that the people will then be gathered according to those languages. This is clearly stated in the table of nations found in Genesis chapter 10, the previous chapter of Genesis, and is based upon the division of these languages found in Genesis 11. This is found in the last words of Genesis 10. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations, and from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. The hand of the Lord directing the people in this way is clearly evidenced. Likewise, in Acts 17, Paul builds upon this thought, stating it to the people of Athens in a manner which they could understand. In his speech, he cites the words of two Greek philosophers, Aratus and Cleanthes, in order to show them that this knowledge still existed in their collective mind. Here's what it says in Acts 17, and he is made from one blood, meaning one person, and every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Verse eight continues, when he separated the sons of Adam behaprido bene adam in his separating sons man there are two opposing opinions regarding the correct interpretation of the word adam should it be rendered as a descriptor of man or as a reference to the first man adam the word means both but the parallelism calls for the former man The New King James Version translated it as Adam, and that's fine, but if you want to understand the parallelism of what is going on, the word should be rendered as man. Adam begat Seth, and so on until Noah. During his time, the world was destroyed by flood. From there, the sons of Noah were then divided among their descendants, as is recorded in the Table of Nations, by name as it repeatedly says, for example, in Genesis 10 20, according to their languages in their lands and in their nations. This is understood even many, many generations later, as is stated repeatedly in the book of Psalms concerning the sons of Ham. It says Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. That's Psalm 105. Well, Ham was the father of Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim descended from him. And yet it's still calling it the land of Ham based on the first father. Once again, you can see God's superintending overarching control of how the nations are set forth. Likewise, the establishment and continuation of the nations and their locations, even into the distant future, is spoken of as a surety in the prophets many hundreds of years later. From Ezekiel 36, I will turn you around. Put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia. There is no Persia today, is there? It's called Iran, but he still calls the land where it is. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north, and all its troops. Many people are with you. He uses the original name of the peoples established all the way back in Genesis chapter 10 to still define the people who are going to come against Israel in a date even future to us today. So deterministic are these words of Moses that they even apply to the last chapters of the last book of scripture from Revelation 20. Now, when the thousand years have expired, this is a thousand years after the war that's coming. This is a thousand years later at the end of the age itself, the millennial reign of Christ, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Even after the millennial reign itself, the same names are used to designate the same places that were originally designated all the way back at the beginning. Now, before we go on, a lot of people get confused about this because they listen to preachers that make stuff up. The battle of Gog Magog in Ezekiel 36 through 39 is not the same as the battle of Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to tell you how you can know this right now. It's because in Ezekiel chapter 36 through 39, it says that I will bring Israel and place them back into the land that has been long desolate. Everybody know that? Is the land going to be long desolate during the millennial reign of Christ? No, The millennial reign of Christ, they'll be filling the land for a thousand years. It is not the same battle. And if anybody tries to confuse you, correct their theology. Even on the last page of the Bible, the nations are identified as individual entities. Here's what it says. Last page of the Bible. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits. Each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We're still gonna have our national identities forever. If you were born as an African, you'll be you'll be an African forever. If you're born as a Persian, you'll be a Persian forever. Jesus Christ is the Christ of the nations. He's the Christ of the nations. The sons of man have been separated. And they will retain distinct natures, even when all things have been restored to the perfection originally intended for humanity. Again, notice the structure of the clauses. It's an A-B structure. In bequeathing most high nations, plural, in his separating sons, plural, of man. It is in doing these things that the Lord has determined the groups of people. But in order for them to be groups, they need to be grouped That is seen in the next words. Verse 8 continues. He sets the boundaries of the peoples. Yatsev gevulot amim. He establishes boundaries, peoples. The verb is another Joseph. It's like a command. It is as if the Lord commands the establishment of the boundaries. He has determined how they will be placed, if they will be uprooted, and where they will go. Jeremiah confirms that this is solely at the direction of the Lord. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 18. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit. Okay, kind of a curiosity. I didn't even realize this until right now, but that was part of my three-chapter morning Bible reading. So I read it once early this morning at about three o'clock and now I'm reading it again. However, Despite nations being destroyed before him, it is the Most High who define their borders in a very purposeful manner, which is, verse 8 continues, according to the number of the children of Israel. Le Mispar Bene Yisrael, two number sons Israel. This is one of the most debated and argued over clauses of the entire song, and maybe one of them in the entire Bible. And it is a verse that is used and manipulated in order to justify rather poor theology. Two variant readings of it are, we just read one reading, here's another one, angels of God. Instead of children of Israel, it says angels of God. That would be the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls say angels of God. And then the Samachis and the Latin translation say sons of God. Okay, so we've got three choices here. Children of Israel, angels of God, Sons of God. Which translation is correct is hard to know. People will pick the translation that fits their presupposition concerning their view on other passages of scripture, like the Nephilim, which they want to support. However, the Greek translation, the Samachis, and the Latin are all translated from Hebrew manuscripts. As this is so, the word God is probably likely. From there, the compilers of the Masoretic text, which is used as the source for the New King James Version and many other versions, probably then decided that this was referring to Israel. Oh, we're the sons of God, right? Everybody got that? We're the sons or messengers of God. It would seem likely that sons of God would be interpreted as angels, meaning messengers, by some rather than the opposite, which is a common misunderstanding of the use of the term sons of God, which is found in Genesis 6-2 and Job 1-6 and Job 2-1. As such, if I were to hypothesize, the true original would be le mispar bene Elohim, or two-number sons God, meaning true believers in the Lord God, because Jesus calls The believers in the New Testament, sons of God. And that is used all the way to the end of. The Bible, sons of God, sons of God, when speaking of true believers of the Lord and the people that support the Nephilim view that it's speaking of angels will take Job 1, 6 and Job 2, 1 and say, see, that proves that men slept with angels when it doesn't prove anything because Job is speaking about true believers in the Lord and not angels. Okay, so this is what's going on. People want to sell books. And so they write these things and they get millions of books sold because they're changing something and people love to read sensational stuff. Okay, it's not responsible. By doing this, by the Masoretes changing God to Israel to define themselves as a subject, by doing this, it would argue against the Christian belief that included them as sons of God. Everybody see that? The macerates come along and they say, we're the sons of God. The Christians have nothing to do with this. And so they change it to children of Israel. Okay. This is not an unimportant exercise in analysis, but it is a key point upon which a lot of other theology hangs. (laughs) The Masoretic text has been purposefully corrupted in other areas to hide passages that clearly reveal the coming of Christ Jesus. So when you see in your Bible, they pierced my hands and my feet, the Masoretic text does not say that. It says, like a lion, my hands and my feet. And when you go to Old King Jimmy version and you read that it says pierce my hands and my feet, that's because they went to another text because they know that the Masoretes had corrupted that to hide the crucifixion of Jesus. The same thing is true with Isaiah 53, where it says his soul shall see the light of life when that's not in the Masoretic text because it's such an obvious and clear reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everybody see what's going on? So they changed sons of God to children of Israel to hide the fact that Christians are sons of God through faith. If my proposition is correct, and why would I be wrong, R-O-N-G, the words are actually stating that the nations are aligned as a tally of true believers in the Lord, something that would correspond to what is said in verse 21, and which Paul uses in Romans chapter 10 when referring to the Gentile believers. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. This is Moses' words that Paul is now citing of Israel in Romans 10. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. This would also then correspond to the truth that there were Gentile believers in the Lord prior to. To the establishment of Israel, as is clearly recorded in the book of Genesis and in Job 1 and 2. The structure would then look like this: A B. He establishes boundaries, peoples, to number sons of God. Now, if I take all four of those clauses together, you'll see the parallel nature of these four verses. A B, A B. In bequeathing most high nations, in his separating sons of man, he establishes boundaries, peoples, two number sons of God. Now, Take the A and the A and read them together. In bequeathing most high nations, he establishes boundaries peoples, their parallel thoughts. B, in his separating sons man to number sons God. Everybody see the parallelism? Fits perfectly. If you look at it in the original Hebrew or in a direct literal translation, you will get the sense of what Moses is showing us and it is unbelievable. And it also pretty much confirms what I just told you about all of the analysis on that particular issue. Obviously, though, Charlie Garrett is coming at this with his own presuppositions, but they are based on a rational and consistent analysis of the greater concepts that are found elsewhere in Scripture, not on a sensationalistic approach or one that denies that Messiah has come and has fulfilled what is prefigured in the interpretation of this otherwise really difficult verse. With that noted, Moses next says, verse 9, for the Lord's portion is his people. Ki-helek Yehovah Amol, for portion, Yehovah, his people. The words are all in the singular. The immediate context is obviously Israel. But being in the singular, it must include those who came before Israel, such as Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and so on, because they're all sons of God, right? They're all children of God. Also, it must include Job and the other sons of God who are noted in Genesis chapter 6 and in Job 1, 6 and 2, 1. As this is so, then it, by default, must ultimately be inclusive of anyone who belongs to the Lord. However, the next clause seems to deny this. Verse 9 continues, Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Yaakov chevel nachalato. Jacob, line, his inheritance. The word chavel signifies a cord, a territory, a band, a line, and so on. It comes from chaval meaning to bind or to pledge. Ultimately, it comes from a root signifying to wind tightly as a rope. So, why would they say the place of his inheritance before I go on? <clears throat> Because that's how you used to measure things. You go out with a rope and you'd measure distance. And then eventually you would say, this is the land that belongs to Reuben. This is the land because they're using these ropes. And you'll see that in Ezekiel and also later with a rod in the book of Revelation chapter 11. They use rods and ropes to measure things, and that's why they translated this as place. I want you to understand this because this is all really important information. A cord or a line is used to measure something, thus establishing a set number, a portion, an allotment, and so on. As such, the inheritance of the Lord is found measured in Jacob. It is speaking of the man, not the location where he will settle. That makes it seem that Jacob, who is Israel, meaning his descendant, is the sum total of the inheritance of the Lord. But there's no reason to assume that based on two things. First, Jesus descends from who? From Jacob. He doesn't descend from Ishmael. He doesn't descend from uh, Esau. He descends from Jacob. And in him is found the joining of the Gentiles into what is given to Israel. That's why it's not speaking of the land. It's speaking of the line of his inheritance, the inheritance Ephesians chapter 2, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, you are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning Gentiles as opposed to Jews, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, the line of his inheritance, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is therefore no reason to assume that what Moses says now excludes any outside of Jacob in the absolute sense. Rather, the line of Jacob encompasses those who come to Christ by faith. This can be seen in how the verses are set in parallel. For A, portion Jehovah his people, B, Jacob line his inheritance. Jacob defines the parameter of who the Lord's people are because Messiah comes through Jacob. As I said, not through Esau, not through Ishmael. And so secondly, this must, this must be because Abraham, for example, is clearly one of the Lord's people and yet Jacob descends from him, not the other way around. There is an immediate context and there is a greater context that must be inferred with that in mind. The call of Jacob is next referred to by Moses. There is no other God. I know not one. Search in the highest heavens and there will be only me. Seek throughout the earth until your days are done and no other God shall you see. I alone am the Lord your God and I alone led you in those early days. Out of a howling, a wasteland, you did trod. Therefore, you shall commit yourself to me always Trust in me and I will give you rest. I will lead you on soft paths, lush and green. In your soul, you shall be forever blessed because you have had no other gods. To you, only I am seen. Our second thought today, the establishment and exalting of Israel. It's verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, he found him in a desert land. The verbs here and in the verses to come are in the imperfect, producing a state of vividness. Midbar. He finds him in a land, a wilderness. You can see it finds. It's not he found him. It's he finds. It's going on. It is as if a movie is playing while Moses describes what is occurring as it happens. Hosea was probably thinking of these words when he wrote his words from Hosea 9. I found Israel. Like grapes in the wilderness, I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season now moses proceeds verse 10 continues and in the wasteland a howling wilderness ube tohu yelel yeshimon and in chaos a howling wasteland the word tohu has only been seen once so far in the bible in genesis 1 2 where it described the formless earth there is also a new word found only here in the bible yelel it is a noun not a verb signifying a howling it's not a howling wasteland it's a howling wasteland everything about what is said gives the sense of aimlessness confusion and the lack of order or purpose but then verse 10 continues he encircled him he instructed him yeso vevenhu yevon nehu he encompasses him he educates him The first verb is savav. It can mean to turn about, go around, or encircle. As such, it could be the Lord is leading him around or that he is personally encompassing him. Encompassing would form proper parallelism. The words speak of the event with a sense of stability or purpose. The chaos is ending. The second verb is bin. It means to discern. As such, it is more than instruction, which may or may not take hold. Rather, it is instruction that leads him to discernment. Thus, he educates him as the intent. There is no longer a chaotic state, a howling, but a reasoned understanding. And more, verse 10 continues, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Yitzharin hu ki yishon eno. He guards him as little man, his eye. It is a marvelously poetic way of describing the pupil. The word ishon is a diminutive form of ish, meaning man. Thus it is the little man. Being in the Lord's eye, it signifies his pupil. The sense is that as one will guard his pupil from any harm, so the Lord guarded Israel with the same intensity. The four clauses form two parallel ideas. There is what is lost and what is unknown being replaced with safety and education. And there is insecurity and a lack of definition, which is replaced with security and intent. Taken together, the four clauses appear thus, A-A-B-B. He finds him in a land, a wilderness, and in chaos, a howling wasteland. He encompasses him. He educates him. He guards him as little man his eye. Everybody see the parallelism? Look at all the little things I put in there and you'll see all of the beauty of what Moses just penned for us. Moses next continues with the calling, verse 11. As an eagle stirs up its nest, it is masculine and describes the father. As eagle wakes up his nest, the Lord is prompting Israel to get up and to take flight, abandoning Egypt. He has taught them and protected them in the land where they dwelt. He has guarded them and kept them while destroying their enemies. Now it is time to fly from that nest. Verse eleven continues: hovers over its young. Al gozalah yerahef over his young. He flutters. The word gozal or young bird was seen in Genesis fifteen nine in the first song of Moses. It is now seen for the second and last time in the Bible. The word rahaf has only been seen in Genesis one verse two, where the spirit of God. Moved over the waters. The Spirit of God brooded over the waters, preparing the creation according to his wisdom. Here, the Lord broods over his young, preparing his people according to his wisdom. Moses is surely tying the preparation of the world for man to his preparation of Israel for being his people. In other words, everything is looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ from the creation itself to the establishment of Israel, to the coming of Christ. It is all about him. When they are ready, he is, verse 11 continues, spreading out its wings, taking them up. The object is singular, not plural. One young is taken, not them, one. Yiprosh, Kenepha, Yikah, hehu. Spreads his wings, he takes him. It is Israel who is taken up and brought forth from the nest. Can everybody see how important it is to not mistranslate these? They're saying them, and any would think, oh, he's taken all of his young out of Egypt. It's not it. He's taking one of his young, Israel, out of Egypt. The imagery is marvelous as the father cares for his young. Verse 11 continues carrying them on its wings. Again, it is singular. Yisaihu al. He lifts him up on his pinions. It is a new and different word than wings of the previous clause, Evra, It signifies the pinions of the bird that the young can cling to. The young need do nothing but enjoy the ride. The idea is similar to that expressed in Exodus 19. Here's what it said there. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Notice the new structure for this verse, which forms an A-A-B-B set of parallels. A, as eagle wakes up his nest. A, over his young, he flutters. B, spreads his wings, he takes him. B, he lifts him up on his pinions. Oh, it's so beautiful to see. Moses pulls out every literary tool he has available in his store of poetical devices in order to delight the senses of his audience. Next, verse 12: So the Lord alone led him. Jehovah Bedad Yan Chenu, Jehovah alone, he leads him. The imperfect verbs continue, providing a vivid sense of action to the mind. The words now speak of the actual exodus while the pillar of fire and cloud went before israel as they departed here's what it said in exodus 13 so they took their journey from sukkot and camped in etam at the edge of the wilderness and the lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people in this state of being led by Jehovah, Moses further says, verse 12 continues, and there was no foreign God with him, and no with him, capital, God foreign. The him refers to the Lord, not to Israel. No other God aided him as he led his people out. As such, Albert Barnes wisely states, the Lord alone delivered Israel. Israel, therefore, ought to have served none other But him. Moses, still pulling out literary device, provides a contrasting parallel in this verse AB structure. Jehovah alone, he leads him, and no with him, God foreign. And you can see the corresponding words Jehovah alone, and no with him. There you go. With the calling complete, Moses moves to the future of where they are right now, speaking of the establishment of Israel in the land verse 13. He made him ride in the heights of the earth. He makes him ride upon high places, earth. The idea is that of the Lord causing Israel to subjugate the land, allowing them to take possession of it. The expression is explained in Amos and Micah, where the same words are used. Amos 4.13, for behold, He who forms the mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. And then from Micah 1.3, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Ultimately, this then looks to be the Lord himself subduing the earth. But immediately it speaks of Israel doing so. In the subjugation of the land, Israel can then occupy and enjoy its plunder, verse 13 going on, that he might eat the produce of the fields. Ve'yokau tenuvot sade, and he eats produce fields. It is a new word, tenuva, signifying fruit or abundance. It is ultimately derived from a word signifying to germinate. Hence, that which produces from the seed is what is being referred to. Verse 13 going on, he made him draw honey from the rock, and he makes to suck honey from crag. Israel is a rocky, stony, craggy place. The word selah signifies a craggy rock. In such places, bees will form their hives. Thus, it signifies sweetness, even from a place that would otherwise seem impossible. Despite this as a literal occurrence, debash, or honey, is equated to the word of God in scripture. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 3. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. The word selah, or craggy place, is metaphorically used to refer to who? To the Lord at times. Psalm 18. The Lord is my selah, my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. As such, one can infer that this metaphorically can speak of Israel drawing out the word of God from the Lord when in the land given to them. A very suitable analogy. Verse 13 going on. And oil from the flinty rock. And oil from flinty rock. This is certainly referring to the growth of the olive trees, even out of hard, flinty rock. Their roots entwine with the rocks, providing them with a stable, enduring foundation. Also, the moisture that results from the changes in temperature causes condensation, which is used to feed the tree. Thus, oil is produced from the flinty rock. However, there is another metaphor being conveyed here. Oil in Scripture speaks of anointing, and thus the presence of the Spirit. And the tzur, or flinty rock, is equated to the Lord even five times in this chapter, such as Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. As such, it is a metaphor for the coming forth of the anointing of the Spirit from the Lord. Something that would occur in and among Israel. In this verse, we have a new structure where the first clause leads to the resulting second thought and then to the subordinate clauses. The first thought, he makes him ride upon high places earth, and that results in a subordinate clause. And he may eat produce fields, and that results in another subordinate clause. And he makes to suck Breaking up into two more clauses, honey from crag and oil from flinty rock. If you see it laid out, it'll make sense to you. The words of the next verse continue to reveal the delights to be obtained from having entered and subjugated this beautiful land that is provided by the Lord. Verse 14, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock. Chemet bakar vechalav curd cattle and milk flock. The curd signifies milk that is in a partially solid or solid state, such as in thick cream or even butter. It, along with honey, is expressly stated to be what Messiah will be nourished on. Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Immanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The curd is then complemented with the fresh milk of sheep. In scripture, milk is equated to the word as well from one Peter. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Moses also notes, verse 14, continuing with fat of lambs with fat lambs. Fat is a metaphor for abundance and health of life. The word to describe the lambs is one that signifies them being full-grown and plump. The picture is one of complete abundance and prosperity. Along with that, verse 14 continues, and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats, Bashan and rams, son of Bashan and goats, The type of rams, elim, signify strength. Bashan is an area especially noted for its livestock. As such, it indicates the finest of animals in the very best of condition. The atodim, or rams, signify those that are full-grown. The word comes from atad, signifying to be ready. Thus, they are perfectly suited for the finest of meals. And yet there is more. Verse 14 continues with the choicest, wheat. With fat, kidneys, wheat. The fat around the kidneys is the purest of fat. It is the fat that was removed from the animal and burnt upon the altar in the sacrifices of Israel. If you remember that in the sermons, it pictured Christ in its own unique way. The fragrance of that fat going up to the Lord in the offerings. The kidney is that which signifies the mind and reasoning in the Bible. These are then used as descriptors of the wheat it being the very finest of all wheat, being large and with a germ that is exceedingly healthy and ready to burst forth. With this abundance noted, Moses provides one more note in this verse to close us out today. It is stated in the form of an address. Verse 14 finishes with, And you drank wine, the blood of the grapes. And blood grape, you drink wine. In this is a word found only this once in scripture, chemer, or wine. It comes from a word signifying to ferment. As such, this is a poetic way of saying that the wine is fermented and pure. Like blood, it is unmixed. The structure must be considered with the previous verse. Although I'm not a poetic specialist, I would think that this is how the two verses are presented by Moses. And if someone here has a better way to present them, mail it to me with a $10 evaluation charge, okay? Okay. He makes him ride upon high places, earth, subordinate, and he may eat produce fields. And then it has an asterisk, and he makes to suck, and then subordinate, honey from crag and oil from flinty rock, and then another asterisk, curd cattle and milk flock, and then subordinate to that with fat lambs and rams, sons of Bashan, and goats, and then another asterisk, with fat kidneys, wheat. And an asterisk, and blood, grape, you drink wine. Go home and look at it and tell me if I got that right. In these verses, there are both shadows and hints of the Messiah, as well as that which he provides to his people. There is food for the young, there is food for the mature. There is drink for the young, and there is drink for the mature. There is that which strengthens the weak to grow, and there is nourishment for the mature to be sustained. It is a beautiful reflection of what is found in Christ and in his word, This is what Israel was provided for their physical lives, both for continuance and for enjoyment, and it anticipates that which is for believers in God's Christ for our growth, nourishment, and enjoyment as well. We will see how Israel will fare with these blessings in the verses ahead, and we should contemplate how we will fare as we receive or ignore our spiritual blessings. The Song of Moses speaks of realities concerning the future of Israel in a poetic fashion, but it also speaks of things that we can both reflect on and receive in our life before God. But just as important as this, the song conveys to us ideas and concepts that will help strengthen our understanding of all of the rest of Scripture in various ways. It will illuminate the errors and the follies of Israel, and yet it will also illuminate the unceasing faithfulness of the Lord towards them. Despite that, let us thank God that he will treat us in the same faithful manner when we are called by him. The Lord will give us abundance and blessing as we live for him, and he will chasten us as we fail to do so. But the Lord has never cast off Israel, and he will faithfully keep us to the end as well. This is the greatness of God towards his redeemed. Let us keep this in mind and hold fast to that. But let us also not test him as Israel was prone to do. In this, we will remain in the sweet spot of being always on his favorable side. But we can't be on his favorable side unless we know him personally. The only way we can do that is by picking up this word and reading it and thinking on it and contemplating it after we have been told about Jesus. Jesus is the focal point of this entire word from Genesis 1.1 all the way to the very end of the Bible, it's all speaking about Jesus and his coming in the form of human flesh in order to redeem us from our sins. Includes Israel's lesson under the law, which we're going to really start to get into next week. We've already seen it 10 million times in the book of Deuteronomy. We're just going to see it again. Moses is so frustrated when he's going through these verses that it's just going to be amazing that he didn't just pop at him the Lord told me you're going to do these things and I'm sitting here telling you in advance and you do them anyway. But we need Jesus to correct that fault in us because Israel is simply a template or a picture of who we are as people. All right. They're unfaithful and God is ever faithful. He called them and he will never break the covenant he made with them ever. And when he calls you, he will never break the covenant that he makes with you. But you have to agree to that covenant first. And that is that Christ died for your sins, implying that you're a sinner That is that Christ was buried, meaning he was really dead, and that your sins went into the grave with him. And it means that Christ, and the third part is that Christ rose from the grave, meaning that he was, one, without sin. Two, that he is God, because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So he must be God. And three, that your sins are still in that grave, because if they were still clinging to him, he wouldn't have come out of that grave. So he's saying that I have saved you with an everlasting and eternal salvation. If you will simply believe what Jesus Christ did, if you will just come to him, you will be saved. And from that moment, he'll seal you with this Holy Spirit. You will be granted eternal life. And then you can go ahead and learn all that this word has for you. Please do that today. Please call on Jesus. And then after that, get into this word. It is the most magnificent thing. Listen, I spent probably 10 or 12 hours. I don't remember how long doing these verses, but I was at the end of the day, I was completely worn out. If I wanted to type a one-hour sermon to fill this church with 5,000 people, I could have done that. God's going to bless you, blah, 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 blah. And you'd be no closer to understanding who Jesus Christ is and the intricacy of his word. But by spending 10 or 12 hours on just a couple of verses to get everything out of it for you, I can. You can see the intimacy that God has with his people and that he expects to have with you if you will simply read this word Please read this word every day of your life. Start with it, finish with it. During the day, read it and think on it, even when you're not reading it. Audio Bible. Man, I'm going through it again right now. I'm just loving it. I just got into the New Testament yesterday, finished up the whole Old Testament for like the billionth time, and now I'm in the New Testament. It's just wonderful. It's all about Jesus. Get into the Bible, please. Okay, I got a closing verse for you here. It's from Psalm 17. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O oh, you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Next week is Deuteronomy 32. It's verses 15 through 22. More of this amazing body of poetry. It's entitled The Song of Moses. Part three. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 95th Deuteronomy sermon. 95 sermons. Ah, I love it. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Okay, I got a poem and then we'll be done. But before I do that, I've got a question for you. What book is the name Boanerges stated in? Bonnier G's. Yep, but what book? Ma- Matthew, no. Luke, John, Mark. Mark, hey, you got it. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> and the second, the second part, you should have just started yelling it out. The second part, you got already because that was my second half to the question. So I'm going to take you out in this, and then I'll let you drive this home. But because of the price of gas, you have to fill it up. Okay. There we go. <laughs> All right, got a poem here. This is the Song of Moses, part two. Remember the days of old? Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. So take your learning stations. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, as the word does tell, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. This is his stance. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness, barren and dry. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, so it does these things spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, not by merely a whim, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock, and oil from the flinty rock, so it yields. Curds from the cattle and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs they did eat, and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats, with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, with the blood of the grapes you did dine. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the song of Moses. The beauty that's tucked away there the intricacy of the words, the marvel and the majesty of what it reveals to us. Oh, it's just, it's just beautiful. Thank you for the song of Moses. And thank you for your whole written word, the entire body of scripture and so many forms and devices that are used, all leading us to one ultimate conclusion, that you love the world enough to send Jesus to redeem us from ourselves, to take away our sins and to lead us back to you. Thank you, O oh God, for Jesus Christ, our Lord. How precious it is to dwell in his name. And Lord, we thank you for the rain we got yesterday. What a blessing. Thank you so much. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. amen.